0: enjoying the sunshine. We are continuing today our sermon series uh, talking about faith and uh, we've been, we're looking uh, at how faith plays out in the lives of some of the um, main Bible characters. We, lo- we spent a couple of weeks looking at Joseph, uh, but we're continuing that um, uh, same I guess, really, uh, by moving on from Joseph to Moses. So the story of Joseph is found at the end of Genesis, and then we move into Exodus, and we come to the story of Moses. But I want to begin today in Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, we, we find here uh, the baptism of Jesus. It's a familiar story for, for many of us. Now, if you and I were writing the story of how Jesus' life and ministry would go, we would quite likely, you know, would include all the main events that Jesus does, uh, that the Gospels do, would have the, the baptism here at the beginning. But then we would probably want, you know, to sort of ease Jesus into it, right? You want to get some experience in this ministry thing. You want to start out with some small miracles and work your way up to some big miracles. You know, start with curing Johnny's common cold and then later on help the lame man walk. Um, And and you would get some experience. Your teaching would start off with simple things and it would get to and maybe there'd be a big crisis halfway through uh, that Jesus would have to overcome before things started going downhill and getting uh, to to the cross. And then uphill as he gets to the empty tomb. So that's perhaps how we would write the story. That seems to be how most uh, uh, stories, novels, fiction, movies run. Okay? They start out, they introduce the person, they get it underway, and, uh, and, and they get your training, and uh, then something happens. But that's not what happens with Jesus. Jesus was baptized, and his ministry, his acceptance of his ministry, begins with fireworks. It begins with the Holy Spirit being poured out from heaven, coming down and descending upon Him like a dove. And then there's this voice from heaven. And and the voice is God the Father affirming His faith in Jesus. That that Jesus is going to be equipped and able to carry out everything that lies ahead of Him. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, this same Holy Spirit that has just descended upon him led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You're like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, that's not why he got baptized. Like, what are we doing here, right? You get baptized and then you get led into, like, this is, I'm signing up for my new job and all of a sudden you've got the biggest account at the company. You know, you, you're a first year teacher, you get the worst classroom in the school. You're like, you are like, you get baptized and you're one-on-one, on, one, mano on mano with the devil himself out in the wilderness. You're like, who wrote this story? We read in verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That'll do it. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. against a stone, basically so that you will not even stub your toe. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left Him, and angels came and attended Him. Now, I don't want to focus today on the details of Jesus' temptation. There's a lot there that we could talk about uh, with that. What I want to just highlight is the way that Jesus responds to the temptation. He, when tempted by the devil, he quotes Scripture. He responds by quoting, firstly, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, and then Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16, and finally, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. And a lot of people have speculated that Jesus quotes these verses, and they're from just like all in a little cluster there, aren't they? Chapter 8 and chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. That perhaps during Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, that he spent time meditating on the story of Israel's 40 years wandering in the wilderness. After all, in a sense, he was reenacting this story of Israel. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus passed through the waters of baptism. They both then head to the wilderness where they encounter difficulties and struggles and temptations. But Israel time and again gave in to those temptations. Time and again, Israel said, Uh-uh, who is this God? We we like this golden calf over here. Uh, we're hungry. God's forgotten about us. Hey, how about we go back to Egypt, everyone? About face. Jesus says, No. He doesn't give in to the temptations. He sort of redeems that experience uh, of the Israelites in the wilderness. And um, what's interesting is that he does so by actually going back to the words written by those Israelites in the wilderness. The words spoken to those Israelites in the wilderness. So he's saying, this is how you do it, in a sense. And, and saying, this is how you withstand the temptations of the desert. Uh, of the the devil when you're you're tempted. In one sense, Jesus was alone in the wilderness. But in another sense, he had been led there by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't just drop him off at the door of the wilderness and wave goodbye. The Holy Spirit was there with him in the wilderness. Uh, In his fasting for 40 days and nights, he's um, praying. Right? Fasting is always accompanied by prayer. He's talking to God. It's the same God the Father who, at the at his baptism, uh, affirms his relationship. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now that puts a lot of pressure on you to live up to it, and there could be doubts, and there could be you know that could bring its own set of, of struggles with it but ultimately it's a statement of affirmation that that God loves Jesus. Regardless of what he's going through, God loves him. And that he's pleased with him. And that the people around him should listen to him. And then Jesus also had the scriptures that he'd been meditating upon. Scriptures that he'd learned, perhaps that he'd even memorized. Think about that. Memorized the first five books of the Old Testament you got five verses that you've memorized. (laughs) Likely, he had those first five books down. So he could sit out there in the wilderness and meditate upon it. That's why they come to, I think, they they come to um, mind so readily when he faces temptation. So Jesus has these three voices present with him in the wilderness. Now, in addition to that, Jesus has been raised by godly parents. Jesus has been raised in a a village of people who go to the synagogue together, who worship God. He's listened to the rabbis there at the synagogue. He's part of a community of faith. And so as he's there in the wilderness, he not only has these three voices, he has all of these voices from his upbringing. He has his experience of traveling to the temple. He has his times sitting at the feet of the rabbis. He has all of this exposure to God that are there with him as he confronts the devil. So, when we turn back to the book of Exodus, there in chapter 1, we find the person that we'll be studying for the next few weeks. And I want to set the scene for you. We arrive in Exodus chapter 1 several centuries after the life of Joseph. The descendants of Jacob are still living in Egypt. And that raises some questions. Well, at least one question. Why didn't they go back to Canaan when the famine was over? Right? They went down to Egypt because there was a famine. And then they just stayed there. Why didn't they go back? Maybe it was because the the Pharaoh was accommodating to them, sympathetic. Um, Maybe Joseph, because Joseph was second in command, right? That gives you a position of privilege in the society. Well, we might as well say, yeah, maybe it's because they gave, the Egyptians gave the Hebrews land. Uh, They didn't have land of their own in Canaan. God had promised it to them, but they didn't have any. But here, the Pharaoh has given them land that they can live on. Whatever the specific reason, in any case, life was good in Egypt. So they stayed there. Now, After a couple of centuries, though, things change. You notice that? You know, every couple of centuries, things change. Um, Eventually, a new pharaoh came to power. We don't know exactly which pharaoh, because the Bible never gives the pharaoh a name, except Pharaoh, which is kind of just like saying the king. It's much more helpful if you say King George or King Henry or you know, whatever it might be, King Ferdinand, but they don't give us the name of the pharaoh. It's just Pharaoh. But what seems to have happened over the course of these centuries is that Joseph served under one particular family of pharaohs. And then that um, family, that, that dynasty changed, and it was probably through war, it was probably through outsiders, either from uh, further south in the, in the Nile, what, what's called Lower, uh, low, Upper, Upper Egypt, and uh, that had come down, gained strength, had come down and defeated the coastal Egyptians. There were really two kingdoms there for a long time. Or someone from somewhere else. And, and so they have this new dynasty of new family of pharaohs on the throne. And because they're outsiders, because they're a, an outside nation, they don't know all of the history of the people that they've just defeated. And so they didn't know Joseph. They didn't understand the presence of the Hebrews living in Egypt. The Pharaoh recognized that they weren't Egyptian, and he saw them as a possible threat uh, to his throne. And so he did what any good leader of the time does, enslave them. We read this in Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 8. Then the new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Enslaving them wasn't enough. They continued to grow in size and population. And the Pharaoh's paranoia about the Hebrews led to him ordering the midwives to kill all the male babies um, of the, that were born to the Hebrews. Uh, This would weaken them in, not immediately, but in the years to come. And then when the midwives refused to do that, he just ordered his soldiers, all his people, that any time a Hebrew boy was born, that they should throw that child into the Nile. This is the circumstances into which Moses is born. His mother and his sister come up with a scheme to have him adopted by a princess to save his life. They're desperate. And they say, we know that this daughter of Pharaoh comes to the river and bathes regularly. And so when he's three months old, they put him in a basket and place him in the river. Now, I don't know about you, but I always pictured him sort of like drifting down the river, you know, out there in the middle with all the boats and the traffic and everything going on. But probably they just put him next to the bank, right at the place where they knew that uh, the princess would come to, to the baby. Being a three-month-old baby, he makes some noise, and the princess investigates. She discovers the baby, recognizes that it's a Hebrew, but is moved by the sight of that infant. The, um, there just happens to be a Hebrew girl there who offers to find a nurse for the princess, for the baby, for the princess. And she says, that would be great. The, uh, the girl, who is Moses' sister, uh, runs off to find this nurse and who happens to be her and Moses' mother. Uh, the, the mother comes then and the princess comes to an arrangement. She says, sure, you take this child, this random child, she plays along with it I think, you take this random child that I've discovered and you nurse it and, uh, and then when it's weaned uh, he can come to the palace with me and that's what happens. And so Moses grew up in his family home for a period of some years. But he wasn't very old when he was taken to the palace and adopted by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And so he spends his formative years growing up in the royal palace. He would have gone to the Egyptian royal school and being taken to the Egyptian royal temples at times of festivals and uh, for just religious events that took place. He would have been educated in um, Egyptian mythology, Egyptian gods, and and how the crops and the plantings and the seasons are related to the stories that are taking place in the uh, Egyptian pantheon. And so, for the next several decades, we're not sure how long, but it wasn't just a couple of years, it was decades. Moses lived in that palace. To all appearances, Moses was an Egyptian. And then one day, while he's out watching the Hebrew slaves working, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he intervened. Something stirred within him. All of a sudden, he's not an Egyptian, even though he looks at and everyone thinks of him as one. All of a sudden, he says, that's one of my people that you're beating. And, and so he intervenes, but he intervenes violently in, to the point of killing the Egyptians. The next day, he's made to realize that he'd been seen. There were witnesses. Pharaoh even learns about it. And Moses... Flees for the wilderness. Now we usually think of Moses as a great man of faith, the leader of God's people, who, when the people rebelled, Moses stood firm. And that is a true and accurate description when we view Moses' life as a whole. But here, at the start of his life, we don't find any mention of Yahweh. Moses seems oblivious to the presence of God. He lives his life by his own rule. He sees a problem, he kills a man, he runs for his life. There's no prayer. There's no discernment. There's no, you know, sort of conversation as Moses looks out and says, "Hey, My people, the Hebrews, are being enslaved, are being mistreated, are being oppressed, are being murdered. God, we need to figure out what to do about this. God, how can you use me? I'm going to make myself available, God. I'm an insider in the palace. Does that give me influence? Can we do something? God, what's your plan? Can you show that to me? Do you have a word for me? Do you have a dream? Do you have a prophet? Instead, Moses says, I know what I'll do. Well, I don't think he really said. I think he just acted on impulse. But he says, I'll kill someone. And then I'll run. God has nothing to do. Moses doesn't seem to consult God about where he should run. He just runs. And he arrives in Midian. And when he gets to Midian, he meets some people there. Midian is a desert kind of area. The, the people are nomadic. Um, and he, But he meets this family and eventually, married a daughter of the priest of Midian. Go, oh, married into a religious family. And it's true. But we're not. We don't know anything about how that guy was a priest. Did he know Yahweh? Was he a priest of Israel's God? Unlikely. In all likelihood, his priest of the Midianite God or idol or shrine and, and so this is the family that Moses marries in and he lives there again we don't know how long but let's presume some decades when Moses returns to Egypt he's going to be 80 years old so however you divide the time in the palace and the time in Midian it's decades in either place And so in chapter 3 of Exodus, God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush. And in chapter 3, in verse 6, we read there that God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So God needed to introduce himself here. God couldn't just come and say, hey Moses, it's God here. He had to say, let me tell you which God I am, Moses. I'm not the Egyptian God, I'm not the Midianite God, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God of your father. And we're told then that that Moses falls on his face, and I'm not sure if it's because he recognizes who this God is, Or if it's just because he was looking at a bush that was on fire but the leaves weren't being consumed and there was a voice coming out of the bush. That would probably make any of us fall on our faces too, right? Or at least run away. But Moses stays there and has a conversation with the voice coming out of the burning bush. In verse 13, though, Moses asks, he says, suppose I go back to the Israelites in Egypt and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Moses' relationship with Yahweh is so tenuous. He's like, I don't even know your name, God. (laughs) Like, what if they give me a quiz? What if I go back to the Hebrews and I say, hey, your God has told me you need to do this. And they say, okay, we don't know you. What do you know about us? Tell us. What's the name of this God? He's like, uh, God? <coughs> yeah. And, and so God said, no, I'll tell you what my name is. And for the first time, God gives a name that he can be called by. And that's where we get the uh, name Yahweh. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me To you. But my point is really that Moses just didn't know God. There's no doubt in this story that God is at work, right? When you read Genesis 1, we see how Moses' life is preserved, and we say, Oh, God is at work. When we we see how he escaped from Pharaoh out into the wilderness, we say, You know, God is saving him. God allowed him to get away, God gave him an education in the palace. Uh, God allowed him to survive in the wilderness, to be integrated into this family. Um, in in ch- the end of chapter 2, the, the author specifically tells us that God is present. It says ju- in verse 23, During that long period, the king of Egypt died while Moses is a Midian. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. You see, the author tells us that God is at work. But Moses knows nothing about it until he reaches that bush. (coughs) Excuse me. But this is the person that God is going to use to free Israel from Egypt, to free Israel from the, the most powerful nation on the planet at that point in time. God is going to use this person who doesn't even know his name. He says, we're going to do great things together. Now, I want you to compare him for a moment, if you will, to Jesus Remember all the things we said about Jesus that he had supporting him when he was in the wilderness with the devil? Well, now Moses has no identity or or a very mixed up sense of identity. Is he Egyptian? Is he Midianite? Is he Hebrew? Which culture, which group of people does he identify himself with uh, the most? Um, he has this really fuzzy sense of who God is. He's been trained in the Egyptian gods, been trained to see the world through the lens of that mythology. But then he's also learned all about the Midianite gods, right? Because he's married to a priest of Midian. So he knows all of their God story for the local Midianite god and how that god influences them. And then maybe in the back of his mind, he has some stories about his parents' God that he learned when he was growing up for those first few years in his parents' home. Maybe. Or maybe not. And so he has this fuzzy idea of God. And there were no scriptures that he could reference. There were no scriptures that he could... Carry with him when he left Egypt? The Ten Commandments hadn't yet been given. He, how did he decide what was right and wrong? There was no law. God hadn't revealed himself uh, to, to people in that way. And so, when, when Moses says, I want to learn about God, how is he going to learn about God? He's much like Abraham, just starting out with a voice, a calling, that so I've got something for you to do. That's a far cry from where Jesus was when Jesus entered the wilderness. And so I want to tie these two experiences together by sharing one of Jesus' teachings in Matthew chapter 17. And this was the passage that uh, was read for us earlier. I won't won't read again. If you have your Bible there, you can look it over and follow along. Um, One day... Jesus has left his disciples by themselves. A man with a son who is demon-possessed comes to them. They can't cast out that demon. They can't heal the boy. And uh, they're puzzled because they've cast out demons previously. This is something that they've done earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has given them that task. Um, But it's not working today. Well, Jesus comes back and he's able to, yeah, sure, I'll send that demon away. The boy is healed. And so they talk with Jesus and they ask him, why why couldn't we do that? (laughs) We used to be able to do that. Why couldn't we do it today? Jesus explains to uh, to the disciples in verse 20 of uh, chapter 17. He says, because you have so little faith, is why they've not been able to do it. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I think when we come to this verse, come to this teaching of Jesus, very often it seems to me the Christian world has focused on that first line. You weren't able to cast out the demon because you didn't have enough faith. And so what many Christians have embarked on is this quest to have enough faith. Right? I need to have enough faith to get through life. I need to have enough faith to do well in my job. I need to have enough faith to succeed. I need to have enough faith to, to be healed when I get sick. And and the converse of that is if somebody doesn't get healed maybe it's because they don't have enough faith. And so we, we set up this the system where we need to measure our faith and we need to have enough of it. And and yet we miss the point of the very next line that says how much faith is enough? It says the faith of a mustard seed is going to be enough. And, And so what we've done is we've said, oh, I need to have enough. So are you telling me that the disciples didn't have the faith of a mustard seed? I think the answer is yes, <laughs> right? So, what I, as I read this, as you try, as we try to understand what's happening here, uh, it seems that the disciples were perhaps relying on their experience in the past. Hey, we could do this in the past. We should be able to do it now. And faith, though, says, no, the faith is always in God. And so God was able to do it in the past. God should be able to do it in the present. and And then... The other thing is that they've had this trouble, has not Jesus had trouble getting them on the same page with him. Uh, in fact, while he was away, he was up on the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John, and, and they wanted to build these tabernacles, these monuments to, to Jesus, to Moses and Elijah. And, and, and Jesus had to say, no, we're not in that business. He, he's still, even at this point in his ministry, continually trying to get them on the same page to understand that his kingdom is going to be a spiritual kingdom, not a kingdom of this world. He's not going to overthrow the Romans like perhaps they're expecting. And so their understanding, their faith, is what's their faith in? And at least on this moment, right? they certainly had enough faith to keep following Jesus. They didn't give up. They were still learning. And, uh, and going after him. But at this moment, for this time, they didn't have the faith that it was required. But that doesn't mean that we need to accumulate or build you know, a certain level of faith. Like a computer game where you're collecting different you know, fruits as you go along the levels, and if you get big enough and strong enough, you can you know, take on the big beast at the end. That's not how it works. It's faith the size of a mustard seed. And so I'm so glad that Jesus says that. Because I I do think that sometimes we feel like to have enough faith, I need to be David. I need to be ready to be David. Okay, to take on Goliath. I need to be ready to be Noah, to to go and do this crazy thing of building an ark when everybody's laughing at me and it's going to take decades for me to get it accomplished. I I need to have faith like Moses that I could go without even knowing who God is and bring my people out of Egypt. I need to have faith like Jesus that I could be baptized the next day go one-on-one with Satan because God's on my side and I can do this. But Jesus, no, you need faith like a mustard seed. I have a mustard seed in my hand, right? You can't see it. Okay, I don't really... But you wouldn't know. I can tell you I had a mustard seed in my hand and you wouldn't know. Because it's small enough that you wouldn't see it from where you're sitting. That's the kind of faith that we need. One writer describes it this way, and I think it's a good one. He says, this kind of faith is like looking at the moon through a window. It doesn't matter how big the window is. You can have a window that's as big as a wall or you can have a knothole that's only as big as one of you are. but if it's pointed in the right direction you'll see the moon you can have a window that's as big as a wall but if it's on the wrong side of the house you'll never see the moon and so i, I think so, so oftentimes we we if we want to we we worry about do i have enough rather than asking the more important question of what am I looking at? Where's God? Where, what, what am I looking at? Because all I need is a hole the size of a mustard seed. And I can put my eye up to it and I can see God if I'm looking in the right place. When it comes to our faith, the most important aspect of it is that our faith is in God. A small prayer to a big God can accomplish great things. And so I don't believe that Moses really knew anything about Yahweh when he was introduced to him at the burning place. I think he was sort of a distant memory. A memory from growing up in his mother's lap. But his eventual willingness to listen and obey started him on a great journey of faith. And so I just want to encourage us that for those times where we say, you know, I don't know what I believe about God. I don't know what I believe about life. I don't understand this or that about God. I've got all these questions, these struggles, these things that don't seem right in the world. Then, you know, don't give up. Don't give up. Because that's not um, faith. We're, we're not required to have all those answers. Having faith is not the same as having all the answers. Having faith is saying, I've got all these questions, and here's where I'm looking for my answers. It may take time, it may take years, it may take a lot of learning, a lot of study, but this is where I'm looking for answers. I'm going to look and listen and talk to God. Who knows what God has in store for you? Maybe you're about to start out on a great journey of faith that you can't imagine the journey, the path, or the destiny, but it begins with a mustard.